for the past two episodes, we've been talking about climate impacts and what it means to start living with them. And today we get to ask, so what? How do we use this knowledge to make choices and actually adapt our behaviors, our services, our lives? In the studio today, our exercises are going to weave in some climate fiction as a design tool. Uh, and as always, this episode is a bit of a prelude, a light introduction to topics we'll dig deeper into in our workshop. Hi, everyone. This is Kelton Miner and Francesca Demaray, and this is the Adaptation Spaceship Podcast, part three of our series, Designing for Climate Adaptation in Costa Rica. We were on the ground in San Jose with CIID, the Copenhagen Institute of Interaction Design. This series accompanies a workshop we're teaching as a part of CIID's summer school. Today, we're opening the design toolbox. So what's design got to do with climate adaptation? So on some level, if you look at our lives, almost everything has been designed by people. There are things that are really obvious, like architecture, it's designed by architects, or clothing designed by fashion designers. We also have products. But then what's less obvious are governments. Those were designed by people. Uh, our educational systems, things like taxes, even the concept of money. These have all been choices that people have made, imagined, and then brought into life. So if you want to think about it at the broadest level, design is intentionally making these choices. And designers have practices to sort of explore and and prototype and iterate so that we can make the best possible choices. And when we think about climate impacts, there are a lot of choices that we have ahead of us. And all of those are opportunities, all of those are moments where we can make design choices. One useful way of thinking about this is to harken back to our spaceship metaphor, where we are on a spaceship and the ventilation or you know HVAC system, the heating, ventilation, air conditioning system, is off. Something is awry. And in this spaceship, we are sort of bound by certain walls. We have limits on materials, access to certain resources, and we're constrained. We're, you know, we're drifting um, in space. So this is what we have. This is what we have to work with right now. And design is how we reconfigure those existing resources in this existing situation to change what we have now into a preferred possible future. So how do we work with these possible futures? Yeah, exactly. And and already we're seeing many examples around the world where people are creating new technology, new services to sort of help us manage these impacts. Uh, there's an example that I really love that's happening right now in the Sahel in northern Mali. And one of the impacts that they're seeing is changing precipitation patterns and sort of increasing drought. And this is affecting uh, pastoralists, cattle herders, they are finding it more difficult to find vegetation. And so there's a service that's been designed. It's called Garble. And basically, it tracks, it uses satellites to track vegetation and herd movement and then provide that information back to a pastoralist. So they just have to call into a phone service and they'll get this information along with economic information about how much it would cost for them to buy food feed if they can't find vegetation or how much it would be to sell cattle or goat. And so they're getting all of that real-time information and that helps them guide and choose the best path to take their cattle. So that's sort of one example of something that's been designed to support this new reality. 
There's another great example from northern India where farmers are having to shift their practices. The summer season is coming earlier, which means that they ha have to harvest the wheat earlier, which means the wheat needs to be planted earlier and the rice needs to be harvested earlier, sort of these cascading impacts. Uh, not to mention plants and crops are more exposed to different types of diseases. So last winter they had a, a potato blight that took over some of their potato crop. So there's a service that's come into this region called Digital Green, and it's basically a technology-based educational system. Uh, you can think of it as like film screenings, where Digital Green is organizing groups of the local farmers to create videos. And they go out and they find practices that are more resilient. They film them. They create these screenings where other farmers can watch. So it's this whole integrated service that is helping the farmers shift their behaviors and find actions that are actually going to work in the changing climate. If we bring it back to Costa Rica, we've been talking a lot about climate impacts that people in Costa Rica are already beginning to face and some of the new choices that that might imply. So we've talked a little bit about how heat is becoming an th increased threat within the cities. So one of the basic choices we have is how do we respond to that heat? How do we protect people who might be vulnerable? How do we know that people are vulnerable? Another issue might be landslides. How do we help people transition away from these dangerous areas? Can we set up systems to be more aware when a landslide is coming, so like these early warning systems? So design begins to sort of be an opportunity to take action and to see these, these threats that we have to understand our vulnerabilities, but then create new pathways. So design is like a tool to, to shape possibility space of those choices, but, but how? Yeah, it's, it's not a simple task. <laughs> As I think anybody listening or participating in our workshop knows, climate and climate adaptation is an incredibly complex problem. It's probably one of the most integrated system challenges that humanity is wrapped up in. And that can be confusing to, to design within. It can also be very difficult. There are systemic hurdles. So for instance, sure, it would be great to move away from areas that are prone to landslides, but what if you don't have any resources? How do you create, how do you bridge that, that hurdle? And it's also an emergent space. So there are unforeseen consequences. And designers today talk a lot about the unintended uh, implications of what we design. And so we have to think about what are the implications of, of, of any design? And can we start to see around corners of the first step that we might take? How do we anticipate those implications? How do we account for them? How do we maybe shift our initial thought or our initial design? So we need processes. We need design tools that really match the complexity of the challenge. And they also need to be able to spread across a few different scales of action. Because as we were talking about in a previous episode, this isn't a simple challenge. It's really nested. There are a lot of layers that come into play, whether that's like at the policy and governance layer. There are all these social norms that we've created between people and in businesses. And then you have sort of the products and environments that maybe designers are most uh, familiar with. But then you have businesses and technology and, and individuals that also start to, to come into play. One of the best tools that we have is storytelling. We're social creatures, and we've been using stories pretty much throughout our entire existence. There's a rich history of communities using stories to shape identities, to share identities, to share 
practices and, and to hold on to histories. And neurologically, stories actually change our brain so that when we hear a story, we engage with it in a way that sort of lights up the parts of our brain where we think we're also experiencing that. So if I tell you a story about going on a fantastic adventure, you're going to actually participate in that story along with me as if we were taking that memory together. So stories become this vehicle for talking about the emotion of a situation and really bringing in um, the emotional qualities and, and the complex layers that we might be working within. So stories are nothing new to design, and if anything, they are sort of integral for just the fundamental human experience. We've always been telling stories. Yeah, exactly. And designers uh, are no exception. We've been using stories in, in design work for a while. There are sort of two different types of stories that designers use. You can think of the, the nonfiction stories that are coming out of our research. So we might go and, and talk to some people in the field and come back and tell those stories of those people, maybe through personas or, or profiles. But we can bring their lives and their needs and behaviors to life through stories. And then, of course, there's the, the more fictional stories of design, because design is about imagining new possibilities. And so here we can be brainstorming, like, oh, imagine if we could do this, or what if our product started to look like this, or what if the building and the community looked like that. that that's all part of coming up with new designs and, and creating fictional futures. And part of this fiction is the relationship, you know, between how new technology and stories are interwoven and science fiction and you know science fiction really as it sounds is like is a way of sort of dreaming up possible scenarios that we can kind of imagine stepping from or tiptoeing from current place and time to some place in the future and i'm thinking of the first you know a motorola cell phone and how it was actually first in a way previewed mm -hmm. or dreamt up um, and displayed in Star Trek. People uh, watched Star Trek and they saw the Star Attack, which was really a precursor to the modern day cell phone. And, and really the first Motorola design was almost like a carbon copy yeah. of the prop that they used to imagine this possible scenario. Yeah, so science fiction has a, a rich tradition of being quite interlinked with the new technology and design. I mean, going back to like Jules Verne, who was writing about the submarine and even his like ideas of video conferencing. Yeah, you have another fantastic science fiction writer, Isaac Asimov, who wrote a lot about robotics and sort of shaped the way that engineers and designers start to think about robotics and even the beginnings of, of artificial intelligence. They weren't designers, but they were writers and they were crafting these futures that required new technology and and new design. So it's a great way to start to imagine, but also a great way to explore what's the implication of these designs. I think um, one of my favorite examples of this is Tom Cruise in Minority Report. And I don't know if you've seen the film, but there's a point where he's sort of controlling this interface and he uses a lot of gestures. And gestures on some way are this exciting new frontier for designers. You don't have to type things into a keyboard. You could use your gesture somehow to control. And what Tom Cruise found is that actually that effort of controlling many screens through gestures is incredibly exhausting. <laughs> like He would have to shoot these scenes, and that was actually physically exhausting for him to use gestures at that level. So in a way, these sort of scenarios allow us to sort of test out 
possible futures, but also to reflect critically on them. And I guess we could go really, really deep here down the rabbit hole of sci-fi, but pulling it back to climate adaptation, uh, where do we go from here? Yeah. So within science fiction, there's a subgenre called climate fiction, and this has become popular in the past few years. And there's lots of new great writers who who are writing cli-fi, as it's called for short, cli-fi pieces. And what's unique about climate fiction is that it's anticipatory. So it's not traveling at light speeds and landing on new planets uh, or going into alternative possible worlds. It's really about probable and plausible futures, so the, the near future that we can start to see. And this is the perfect space for climate change because climate science and projections are pointing at some possible futures. And so climate fiction explores what is the world going to look like in 50 years or in 100 years. And because it's a piece of fiction, and oftentimes they're quite long novels or movies, they can really explore those worlds and those futures at a complex level. So you get multiple characters with different perspectives. You can see some people who you know are doing maybe quite well in the future, and some people who are still struggling. Uh, there are all sorts of hopes and fears and uncertainties that can be woven into these stories. And then, of course, we start thinking about new designs and new choices and their implications. Gotcha. So, so in a way, you're sort of rehearsing, you know, the the future, and of course, the future will always be different from what you're rehearsing. But just the act helps to situate you in, you know, those scenarios and and, and makes you sort of aware of a lot of the issues that need to be thought out and and need to be dealt with. Do you have a favorite? Yeah, I have many favorites. I think maybe a good place to start is uh, New York 2140 by Kim Stanley Robinson. And in this book, he explores a New York City that's been flooded. I think there's some interesting characteristics of New York City that start to emerge. You have the area of lower Manhattan that's pretty much underwater now. So there's sort of these the subculture of underwater life that's maybe a little bit uh, removed and uh, underground. You have the inner tidal zone, which I find really fascinating as a space where there's an area of Manhattan that responds with the tide and sort of sees more water um, as it flows in and out of the city. And then you have sort of upper Manhattan that is now home to even taller skyscrapers and is still, you know, this hub of financial wealth that's sort of driving the rest of the, the global economy. And then you have an area that's inhabited by blimp travel, and uh, there's a fantastic character who's actually migrating species by blimp and helping them sort of find new homes and new ecologies where they can actually thrive. So within all of these different characteristics of the city, you're starting to see new patterns and new behaviors. Kim Stanley Robinson explores self-sufficient agriculture so that the, the buildings that are still standing in the flooded areas of Manhattan are on some level growing their own food. And the, he's created this world of building co-ops that have to manage their food. And then there's a, a whole system for turning that greenhouse produce into, into food within the building. You have new modes of entertainment. So the, the character who's flying around on a blimp is actually live streaming her entire life and is this sort of movie star who embeds a lot of drama and 
theatrics into her life. Uh, you have an entire system that's been built around boats. So thinking about like boat storage in lower Manhattan or how do you get access to buildings or what's it like to go on a date in a boat in, in lower Manhattan. These very mundane things that are being facilitated by different designs. So what you just described was super you know, immersive and stories are inherently engaging. How do we use climate fiction as a design tool? There's a practice within science fiction called science fiction prototyping, and this was introduced by Brian David Johnson in 2010, who at the time was a futurist at Intel. And basically what he did was create this practice where we can use sort of the same principles that a writer might use to create a science fiction piece, whether that's a story or a movie or a comic, but then adding in space for us to reflect as designers about what do we learn, what questions arise. So the steps that you would follow are to one, sort of pick your science and build your world. So it's really world building 101. Who are the people? What's the system? Uh, what's the ecology, the economy? And then the second step is to identify a scientific inflection point. So something happens, some change of science that's going to draw uh, sort of a plot twist. And then you want to consider the ramifications. So like what happens? What does that science due to your world and particularly to the people that are living in your world? And then how do those people react and how do they change their behaviors? And then at the end of this sort of thought process, you'll definitely be reflecting on new ideas or new questions. Sort of the fifth step is to, to ask yourself, what did you learn? So this is a nice, simple framework to think about stories in science fiction. And we can modify it within the genre of climate fiction or cli-fi to really focus on it from a climate adaptation point of view. So when you build your world, take into account the wealth of scientific projections and think about, okay, what is our world going to look like when we know we can project in 50 years that this is sort of the range of possible temperatures or possible precipitation we might be living with? And in the second point, the scientific inflection point and the ramifications on people, these are things that we're already talking about. These are the climate impacts and how people will start to be affected, whether that's, as we've been talking about, increased heat in cities or rising sea levels or shifting agriculture. All of these are scientific inflection points, climate inflection points that are a starting point for the stories we can tell. So how do you build this, you know, climate fiction? How do you move from, you know, where we are here today to this, you know, alternate universe that might be, you know, possible or at least is within the bounds of projection? How do we create that universe? I think it really centers on the first two steps. So world building and then creating, finding that inflection point that you want to start from. Um, and here... I often go through a series of creating a lot of different possible outcomes based off of the science projections. So you could take a world where maybe there's low impact, a low impact pathway. Um, you could take a world where there's a significant impact. We're looking at you know, higher temperatures. You could take um, worlds that fit along with the shared socioeconomic pathways. All of these are different inputs for a lot of different futures that the, the scientific community is talking about. So that's sort of a starting point. And then you want to go through a very expansive brainstorming process of writing many story arcs, because there's not just one sort of fiction. There's many different story arcs within these worlds. So outlining, quick, just quickly outlining a lot of different bones of a story. 
And then from that process, you'll pretty quickly get to reflecting on what did we learn. So, for example, let's say that cyclones are becoming stronger and coastal neighborhoods are seeing more flooding. Uh, and so that's maybe the, the beginning scientific inflection point. And a ramification could be that communities decide to do a managed retreat and actually move away. That's the human inflection point. And then from there, we start to ask ourselves, okay, so what's the process of trading in a, a house for a new home or an apartment? What are these new communities that they're actually moving to? Are they smaller apartments that have to fit into certain areas? Are they farther away on the outskirts of town, sort of totally new and developments that need to be made? Uh, what do people do with everything that they're moving if they're downsizing? Are there recycling systems that are created to, to, to handle you know, people's old lives or trash? And then on larger scales, like what are the policies in these areas? Do zoning laws need to be rewritten to take in people? Are there incentives like cash buyouts? Um, what happens to the, the heat island effects? Each one of those is also another inflection point that you could take one step further. And so it becomes this sort of like brainstorming process to just be free and, and try out a few different different story arcs until you find one that feels convincing or, or interesting or new um, in a way that can, can spark design. Once you've found through that iterative process a design that you're excited about, then the design storytelling task starts over again and you want to tell a story of that design uh, and bring it to life through maybe a, a, a nice prototype or a comic, um, something that other people can also understand the story behind. So do you have any tips from your experience, you know, doing this in the past? I, I'm sure you've learned a few things about sort of what works well. Yeah. So I think I, I hinted at some of them. The first is to choose really different worlds, to force yourself to imagine uh, quite different possibilities and then to tell stories within those different possibilities. And, and the second to, is to remember that one of the key things to design is to be iterative, that uh, you're not going to get this right the first time, but to give yourself space to really explore and write a few different outlines of stories, to show them to somebody, to get feedback, to go back and try again. Um, this, isn't, this isn't a simple process. This is going to be a messy, complex design process of, of thinking through many different possible arcs. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, from a climate science standpoint, we often talk about the different sort of um, RCP uh, pathways and, you know, the different sort of relative emission uh, pathways that also will, you know, affect the trajectory that the world takes with regards to, to warming, depending on certain assumptions. So depending on how much, you know, emissions uh, uh, we release and, and sort of what humanity does over the coming years to reduce it. So in a way, it really is feeding directly into the global sort of simulation exercise that we're already working on to try to prepare for, you know, the possible futures that are rapidly approaching. Yeah, exactly. And with that in mind, another like two really good tips. One is to tell your stories from the point of view of one person. So even though your stories might have lots of characters in it, you're still going to bring to life sort of like one individual that just mentally helps people connect with a story. And secondly, to make the stories larger than life, to overemphasize certain aspects. So if your story is too flat, again, we're not going to emotionally engage with it. So you have to be able to amp up some characters um, or amp up some of the, the impacts of climate change in a way that we can connect with. I think 2140 is a great example of that. We'll 
New York City see the amount of flooding that Kim Stanley Robinson talks about in 120 years? Maybe not. But because he takes it to that level, he amps up that amount of flooding, we can engage with it on a deeper level. All right. So we've covered a lot today. And I think just to wrap things up, I want to do a little quick sort of exercise with you. So bear with me, but close your eyes, pick a point, any point in San Jose. Um, Could be one that you've visited. Perhaps you haven't spent much time in San Jose and you're just here for a short uh, visit and it, you know one of the, the places you traveled through or it could be you know a place that you grew up uh, if you've you know lived here for quite a while just find a spot in your mind in San Jose and place yourself there and imagine that you essentially turn into a rock in that position and all of a sudden we're going to fast forward time so here we go there goes a day okay a week week, week, month, month, okay, year, year, decade, decade, now we're traveling centuries. What do you see? What's happening? 